If you uh, uh, love the Lord Jesus Christ, and if you love the word of God, I think you're gonna really enjoy our, our time together. So let's begin with prayer, and then we'll jump right in here about God's design for marriage. Gracious Father, as we begin this day, we do so with great anticipation about learning how the word of God can change us, and eventually, Father, how it ultimately really changes uh, our marriage. I pray, Father, that during our sessions today, you would so uh, work in our hearts that you would open it up to the Word of God. Help us, our hearts, our individual hearts, to be receptive to the truth. Bring about changes where uh, changes need to take place, whether there are changes that we know that need to be made or even things that are hidden in our own life that, and in our marriage where we're unaware of, but some radical change needs to occur. So I would pray, Father, that you would use this um, to make us and shape us into your son, Jesus Christ. May this be a profitable day as we look at your design for marriage. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to start off and share with you just a little bit about um, uh, my wife and I and how we met got together so you will have a little uh, background or a little insight and in where I come from when it comes to, to marriage. Um, my wife would be here normally, but some of you were here last night, heard that she got called into jury duty and uh, this week. And uh, what makes matters worse is it's a murder trial. And so they're pretty serious about this. And and we also have plans. She's going to travel with me in a few weeks. So um, I'm kind of hoping that she doesn't get called or seated on this jury because uh, then that would really ruin our plans to go see our granddaughter. And we have a one-year-old granddaughter. I know many of you are shocked. How can a guy that looks so young have a granddaughter? Uh, but I, I do. Uh, uh, little Abby and then we're, uh, our other daughter is expecting our second grandchild. My wife and I attended Cedarville University back in the mid-70s. That's when it was called Cedarville College at that particular time. Uh, we didn't know each other. We had kind of bumped into each other once before, but um, uh, my wife knew my sister on campus, and she was talking with her about needing to get a ride to a nearby town, Springfield, in order to get a bus and go home for the weekend. Her family lived in Michigan, and... Uh, her father was a pastor there in Michigan and really come to find out she needed to get a ride home so she could break up with her high school boyfriend. All right, that's what she needed to do, but I didn't know that at that time. And my sister said to her, well, you know, my brother has a car. Uh, he could take you uh, up there. And she said, oh, well, that's great. Well, I think I see him when he comes through the cafeteria line because she worked in cafeteria that at that time. So I was going through the cafeteria line one day and this really cute brown haired girl looks at me and says, uh, your sister tells me you have a car. Would you be willing to take me to Springfield in order to, uh, for me to catch a bus to go home for the weekend? And I said, well, when do you need to go? And she told me and I said, and I thought to myself, oh my goodness, that's right during the time that I have a Greek class. Now I had an old fashioned teacher. His name was Dr. George Lawler for that Greek class, and he was one of those old-fashioned teachers. You never skipped Dr. Lawler's class. He always wore to class um, a coat, tie, um, cufflinks. Um, he was a very proper, almost English-type gentleman. And, um, and when you translated Greek from the New Testament, you had to stand up next to your chair and he would always, he would never call you by your first name. He'd say, Mr. Street, would you please stand and translate the next 10 verses for us? And then parse all the verbs and the participles. And you'd be sit, standing there with your Greek Bible shaking like this, translating all the way through. That's Dr. Lawler, okay? Well, <clears throat> here I'm faced with this horrible dilemma. Pretty girl, Greek class. Pretty girl, Greek class, all right? And I knew that if I'd suffer for it later on if I chose pretty girl. Well, pretty girl won out. So I ended up taking her to Springfield. On the way up there, we had this wonderful discussion. And during that time, I'm thinking to myself, I gotta think of a way to ask this girl out. 
So we finally get to the bus station and I stay with her until the bus arrives and we talk for a while and then she gets on the bus and as she's getting on the bus, I say to her, by the way, I'll send you a bill for this. Kind of stupid, but I said it. And she says, oh, okay. So she hops on the bus and goes home for the weekend. So that weekend I make out in hand calligraphy a really nice uh, little sheet of paper that says, uh, do one date for John Street's taxi service. All right, and I put it in an envelope and I send it to her in intercampus mail. Well, after I sent it to her, I started to have second thoughts about it. I'm going, wow, she's going to think this is really corny. This is really goofy. So I went back to the intercampus mail and there was a guy working behind the counter and I said to him, you know, I stuck this envelope in intercampus mail. Um, I, in fact, I can see it. It's sitting back there on your table right there. Would you hand that back to me? I, I, don't, I, I need to retrieve that thing. He says, no, no, I'm sorry, sir. We can't do this. I said, listen, it's just sitting right back there. I can see it. Just grab that thing. You can give it to me. No, I'm sorry. I said, this is not the U.S. mail system. All right? All right. This is just inner campus mail. There are no stamps. I'm sorry, sir. It's not our policy. I'm going, give me a break. All right? So now I thought, well, that just did it. She's going to think this is the corniest thing in the world. So I went on... The next week started, and two or three days in the next week, all of a sudden, I get this envelope in my mailbox, and I open it up, and inside of it is a check for a million dollars worth of fun. So she accepted my, my date offer, which was really nice. Here, I didn't know it at the time, but she had broken up with her boyfriend when she had gone home for the weekend. And uh, so that was our first date. So I always tell everybody that she's the one who asked ask me out on the first date. And then our second date is kind of an interesting thing because I had a roommate who was engaged. And so we double dated with the and his fiance. And he was driving and we were going to go out to get pizza. And uh, his fiance was sitting close to him. And Janie and I were sitting in the back seat at each ends of the back seat. And that's in those days where there were, uh, we didn't, they didn't have the bucket seats. They just those, uh, those straight bench seats. That's right in the backyard, back of the car. And so while, and during the drive, his fiance leans over to him and says, just loud enough for we could hear him. I love you. She said right in his ear. And I looked at Janie and I said, what did she say? And Janie said, I love you. I said, no, 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 what did she say? <laughs> so on the second date, she told me she loved me. So I figured I'd have to marry her. <laughs> so that's how, that's how we got started and uh, uh, how things kind of evolved from that point. And we, um, God has blessed us with four wonderful children. Two of them are married now. Our two oldest daughters are married um, one is with her husband in Canada, and he's a real estate guy in Canada, and uh, up clear up north of New England in St. John area, and doing really well, and they have our first grandkid, and our other daughter, uh, her husband actually works as a resident director on campus there at the Master's College where we're at, and she's pregnant, going to deliver here probably in December with our second child, and uh, she they are very excited. You didn't know that part, Katrina. You didn't know that. Yeah, she's pregnant. She's looking very pregnant right now and uh, expecting our second grandchild. And then we have twin boys and they're both seniors at the master's college. Um, and um, there's nobody in their lives at this particular time, but they're shopping. So um, uh, really, really great guys. Well, that gives you a little bit of background about our family so you can kind of get to know me just a little bit. We want to talk about God's design for marriage today. And um, so if you have your notes in front of you and you have something to write with, you may want to take down a few of uh, these notes as we work on things. You don't have to go very far or talk to very many people before you begin to realize that there is major problems going on in families today, in marriages today, in Christian marriages today. Christian marriages are not exempt. Um, almost everywhere I go, every church that I speak in, every conference we go to, 
at some particular point, somebody tells me a story about something that's going on in their particular church or some, uh, I, don't, I haven't heard anything about this particular church yet, but some marriage or something that's gone, going on and how it's, it's just a tragedy uh, of what has occurred. One of the reasons for a weekend like this is to see what does God say about these things? When your marriage is having problems, and maybe you're here and your marriage really not having a whole lot of problems, but there are certain areas that really could be wrinkled. The wrinkles could be ironed out. Then um, what does the word of God say about dealing with that? Well, that's where we want to talk a little bit. And we want to begin with uh, introductory perspectives on marriage. Now, how do marriage problems begin? How does this happen? Well, part of it begins when people get married because they marry for the wrong reasons. They marry for the wrong reasons. Um, it's, not a, it's not a God-honoring reason that they get married. For example, some people marry because they've been promiscuous. And they feel guilty over that. And the way that they sort of are going to, through a Christianized form of penance, pay for their promiscuousness is by getting married. That's what we want to do. After all, in that particular case, this is where the church begins to adopt a Roman Catholic view of marriage where, well, if two people have been intimate together, we've got to get them married, right? No. In fact, the very fact that they've been intimate with each other prior to marriage demonstrates the fact they're not ready for marriage, not a God-honoring marriage. They're not ready to, for the discipline of marriage, all right? Um, now we put them together and ask them to, to honor a marital cov covenant when in reality they couldn't keep themselves pure prior to marriage. How are they going to honor that married covenant? It's going to be difficult. So if someone else comes along that seems to be appealing, then they could very easily be intimate with them as well. So sometimes people marry because they've been promiscuous. Then there are other times where people marry in order to compensate for, uh, for faults that they see or to run from perceived faults. Um, some people marry for money. And you've heard that old adage, if you marry for money, you end up earning every penny of it. All right? You do. You marry for money, you end up earning every cent uh, through that particular marriage. Other people marry because... They see someone that's really outgoing and they're not really outgoing and they've always wanted to be around somebody who's really outgoing and they're kind of shy and retiring or, or maybe they're really outgoing and they see somebody that's really quiet and seems to be much more stable and so they marry them because they're quiet and stable in life and so they're running from a perceived fault or weakness that they see in their life or maybe they come out of a bad family background and they marry because they see this particular person coming from a real good family background um, so it's a perceived whatever that may be they run from a perceived fault in their life what they see is a weakness now it's not wrong to marry somebody who's strong in an area that you're not strong in I'm not implying that at all it's not wrong to do that but if that's your only reason to marry or that seems to be the center reason why you get married now we've got a problem and it's easy for a marriage like that to get itself into trouble. Um, then there are other people who marry in order to realize an image. Now, listen, gentlemen, if you haven't, don't know this by now, you, you will. Um, these gals have had their marriage plan from the age of five, okay? In other words, they've thought about it a long time. When I got engaged to my wife, I asked her that night when we got engaged, you have any ideas about our wedding? Oh, no, 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 I don't, I don't have any ideas. 10 minutes later, she's talking to her sister. She's describing everybody that's going to stand up with us, what the dresses are going to look like. She's going to describe what kind of cake they're going to have. I said, where do you get this? 10 minutes ago, you were telling me you didn't have any ideas what was going to happen with our wedding. <laughs> are you kidding me? Most guys don't even entertain the thought of a wedding uh, until much later in life, 18, 19, 20 years of age. Maybe it may go past their thoughts, but it's very fleeting, all right? Maybe it goes past their thoughts. Oh, yeah, I may have to get married someday, but the wedding's not 
not much is thought about until all of a sudden they're engaged in, oh, we're going to have a wedding, don't we? That's right. No, no, she's got it planned from the age of five. So maybe this is her way of realizing a particular dream, or maybe he or she uh, have always dreamed of themselves living in a little white house with a white picket fence and, um, you know, a dog playing happily in the yard and kids swinging on swings. And, and that's the kind of image that I want to realize for my life. And so they marry in order to achieve that kind of image. That's just something that they've always dreamed about, to have that kind of beautiful picture, you know. And strangely enough, um, dirty diapers, rebellious kids, um, um, uh, financial struggles are not a part of that dream, never a part of that dream, all right? Um, uh, all of a sudden, that beautiful white house on Main Street with a white picket fence turns into a little basement apartment with two rooms and um, a little heater to heat up ramen noodle soup, all right? Um, this is not what I got married for. Right? This is not the reason why I got married. Um, so some people marry to realize some kind of image, something that they've dreamed about and they want. You say, Dr. Street, you're so destroying my concept of marriage. No, I don't want to do that. I'm just talking about why do people get married? Why do they get to this point where they get married? And then there are other people who marry, and this is a way in their Christian conscience to legitimize sex, all right? They just have a strong sexual desire. And after all, isn't that what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7? It's better to marry than to burn, right? It's better to marry than to burn. Um, and oftentimes we quote that as if Paul, the apostle Paul says that marriage cures lust. No, marriage does not cure lust. People get married and they can still carry a lustful heart into marriage. Doesn't cure lust at all. Lust is something that starts in the heart, not in the body. Right? It's not a result. Lust is not primarily a result of sexual hormones being released in the body. It's primarily a decision in the heart it begins there. It's ideas and concepts, and the body just prompts it, right? So some people realize, or uh, they see this as marriage as a way to legitimize the physical relationship. Um, um, and so they get married so they don't have to feel guilty. They can have sex on a regular basis, and they don't have to feel guilty about that, and et cetera, and et cetera, et cetera. Now, um, when you consider the fact that nowadays the family is under constant attack everywhere, everywhere we look. For example, the whole playboy philosophy is an attack upon God's institution of the family that uses people as sex objects, uses women as sex objects, uses men as sex objects. That's the whole playboy philosophy. It, it does objectify people. You're there for my pleasure. You're there to please me. That's, the, that's an attack upon God's institution of marriage. That's not what God intended ever from the beginning. In fact, when you take a look at 1 Corinthians 7, the physical relationship in marriage is intended for you. It is your marital duty, 1 Corinthians 7, 3, to satisfy your spouse. It's your marital duty to do that. It's, they're not there to satisfy you. You're there to satisfy them. It just so happens that in satisfying them, you receive pleasure over that too. But that's just the icing on the cake. You're there to satisfy them. Marriage is not primarily there, or the sexual relationship in marriage is not primarily there for self-satisfaction purposes. So the whole playboy philosophy destroys what God intended for marriage. Furthermore, you've got gay and lesbian agendas that do the same thing. They destroy God's concept of marriage. Um, 
Furthermore, there's entertainment mediums. You've got television sitcoms, the internet, movies, radio. Almost every place you see marriage depicted, it's some distortion of marriage. Even if you have, like, well, let's take, for instance, the Cosby Show. You ever seen the Cosby Show? Even if you have the Cosby Show, you've got an intact husband and wife relationship. But even though the father is a medical doctor, he's always the buffoon in the family. He's always the buffoon. The kids and the wife always know better than he does. Uh, they're the ones who always know he's the idiot. He's the last one to know. Or, and so you've got some warped perception of what God intended the marriage to be. And then you've got materialism. Materialism exalts things above God and people. It exalts things above God and people. So a whole materialistic philosophy of life is really an attack upon God's institution of marriage or you have substitutes for marriages you've got trial marriages contract marriages live-in lovers semi-married prenuptial agreements lat marriages you ever heard of lat marriages living in apart together marriages um, those are becoming very popular out in California that is, two people are legally married, but they live in two different locations. They still have their independent jobs. They still have their independent houses or homes. And occasionally they get together and they sleep together. But other than that, um, and they do it maybe to avoid certain amount of taxes. Uh, they get married in order to do that. Um, but they still have their independent lives. And she lives with her cats. And he lives with her do his dogs. And, and they don't have to put up with the inconveniences of living with one another. They can just get together and uh, temporarily enjoy one another, so to speak. Well, when the Bible talks about marriage, that's not what it's talking about. That's not what it's talking about. And you'll see this in a little bit, especially when we get into Genesis 2.18. Well, so we get this idea that in culture today, you've got people who marry for the wrong reason. Um, so there you could say that that undermines um, marriage right from the very beginning. In society at large today, You've got an attack upon marriage coming from almost every direction. And the, there's really a twofold effect. Um, one is that a lot, many young people who are planning on getting married are very unsure about marriage. Now, I teach in a college environment. I'm around young people all the time, young people that are... Um, finding their lifetime mates are occurring all the time at the college and I can see it and they'll come in uh, to my office to get or Dr. Baker's office or Dr. Somerville's office in order to get premarital counseling uh, like Jeremy and Serena did they'll come in and oftentimes those couples as you begin to probe they're very excited about the relationship but they probe, you probe them about the long term vision for their marriage they're very unsure they've heard all the statistics of all the failures are we going to make it how can I be sure that we're going to make it really marriage doesn't have a high probability of survival in our culture today and there is a unified philosophical attack um, internationally upon the institution of marriage Back in the 1990s was the International Year of the Family. Some of you probably heard that, sponsored by the United Nations. It sounded like all of us as Christians could jump on board of that. Wow, they're promoting the family. But you know the way that they define the family? It's any two people living together for any extended amount of time for any purpose. So two hobos living in a boxcar is considered a family. All right? It doesn't matter who they are. That's, that's, that's a family. That's not God's definition of the family. Never was. So a lot of young people today are with this societal attack upon the family. They're very unsure. And you can see the doubt and the skepticism in their eyes when they, when they come in for counseling. And secondly, I think the second effect is that a lot of people that are already married, they've lost hope. A lot of people who are already married have lost hope. You know the philosophy where the woman says, 
um, divorce isn't an option. Uh, suicide and murder probably is. <laughs> divorce isn't an option, but suicide or murder is. Um, that's how unhappy she is in her marriage. She's not happy. So the, there's this twofold effect that has happened. Now, what excites me is this, that the church of Jesus Christ has lasting answers. We do. We have lasting answers from the word of God. And I have seen time and time and time again what you probably would call hopeless situations in marriage turn around and now they are there is a joy there is an excitement in the relationship there's a purpose in the relationship it's, it's God honoring it's a God honoring relationship and both of them they're not perfect but they're serving the Lord together in a um in a joyful manner. So the church of Jesus Christ has answers and we want to get into those answers today. We want to talk about those. So let's begin by talking about contemporary presuppositions and God's design. Okay. We brought up the issue how in our culture and society today, marriage is under constant attack. Right. And it, and it happens oh so subtly, but it's there. There are a lot of secular theories about marriage. Um, I try to stay up with as much of the secular literature that's out there. If you were to go to uh, UCLA or the University of Southern California or um, College of the Canyons, which isn't far from our college or... Um, if you were to go to CSUN, uh, which is uh, a university not far down in San Fernando Valley from us, and you were to take graduate classes in sociology and psychology and read the textbooks about marriage, I think that, and some of you probably have, uh, I think that you'd be shocked about what they say about marriage. And especially where marriage came from. Where did marriage come from? Of course, God's not in the picture at all. A biblical view's not at all. God is not a creator. There is no such thing as Adam or Eve that God created. Uh, so they have to figure out where did marriage come from? How did we get the institution in society? And the result of it, you were to take all these theories and boil them down, and I'm going to be very simplistic just for a moment, because we could get into all the different theories on where and how marriage came. You boil them all down. Marriage, they would say, is a result of man's planning and design. Sometimes in our student notes, um, when I teach a graduate class on marriage and family counseling, I have an extended portion taken out of the United Nations view on the family. And, and I let them read this. And the idea is something like this. Back in ancient times, there were two guys. We're going to call them um, Gog and Mog. These two guys. And one day, Gog came to Mog and said this. Ooh, can't tell your woman from my woman and family what we do Mog says Ooh, don't know what we do Gog says Ooh, got idea I grab one woman and drag her to nearby cave and all of her children will follow her and you stay here Ooh. Mog says, Ooh, good idea. What we call it. Uh, Gog says, Ooh, uh, let's call that marriage, family. Mog says, Ooh, sounds good. What's marriage? What's family? Ooh, 
Uh, Gog says, oh, I don't know. Uh, now you get the idea, right? <laughs> you say, now that is the corniest thing I've ever heard of in my entire life. Well, you're right. But if you were to take all those sophisticated theories about where family came from and where marriage came from, that's really, really what it boils down to. They would, they would say something like this, that marriage fits an agrarian culture and society, but it does not fit the high-tech society that we live in today. And I want to suggest to you, 180 degrees is the opposite. All right. The longer we go, the further we go in culture and society, <coughs> the more alienated man feels from man, which is one of the reasons that God gave marriage. Genesis 2.18, it was not good for man to be alone. You know that. It was not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. God says. Not good. So there was this secular evolutionary caveman arrangement of marriage. And that's the reason why we have marriage in the form that we have it today. It's because prehistoric society needed to have some kind of structure to it and the way that they identified the structure was through this caveman type of relationship now i want to suggest to you that as a result of that if man developed marriage then man can redefine marriage or he can destroy marriage if he wants. In other words, how you conceive of the origin of marriage determines what you do with marriage now. How you believe that marriage began affects how you deal with marriage now. If you believe that it was a result of some caveman evolutionary development that was necessary for an agrarian type of culture and society, then that's going to have an effect upon how you deal with your own marriage today. But if you believe that God created marriage... It's really a divine institution. It's not something that man developed. It's something that God instituted for a very specific purpose. Then that changes everything. That changes how you look at your own relationship in marriage. What is it that you really believe? Where did marriage come from? Because belief has implications. From a scriptural standpoint, the Bible says that marriage was given by God. Grab your Bible. Let's go back to Genesis 1, and we're interested in verses 26 and 27. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. Verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Now, if you look carefully at verse 26, I want you to note a few things. Let's be good observers here. There is a play, and you can pick up on it even in the English, but it's even more vivid when you look at the Hebrew. There is a play here on plural and singular. Notice this. Then God said, let us, plural. Now, where, who is the us? 
Most theologians believe that this is a reference, the earliest reference in the Bible to the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Clear up in verse 2, we already see the Spirit of God moving upon the face of the water. So let us, who's a reference to? It's a reference to the Trinity. Let us make man singular in our plural image singular according to our plural likeness singular and let them plural rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth now you can see this going back and forth between singular plural singular plural in other words god says god in in essence god in relationship the plurality of the godhead and yet there only being one god creates man in relationship male and female with essential plurality and yet coming together as one we'll see this later on in genesis 2:24 where it says um that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So there is an essential plurality of personhood in the oneness of marriage. Gender distinctiveness. So the genders now are created, verse 27, to complement one another. To complement he created them male and female, verse 27. Adam was created uniquely and distinctly male, and that was good. In fact, not only was it good, but then later on, after Eve was created, in verse 31, it says that God called this distinction very good. I just got back from Germany and Switzerland a couple weeks ago. And teaching there and the Germans say sehr gut alright very good very good this is this is the fact that Adam was completely and fully male and the fact that Eve was completely and fully female gender distinct and yet gender complementary is a very good thing from God's perspective not bad at all so God in relationship, that is the plurality of the Trinity, and yet there is only one God, creates man in relationship, the plurality of the sexes and the gender distinctiveness of the sexes being brought together in one relationship that's referred to as marriage is a very good thing. From the very beginning, this is what God intended. So marriage was given by God. And this is the critical point. If that's the case, if God created marriage, not man, then he has answers for marriage when it gets into trouble, which means there is hope even for your marriage. If man created marriage and marriage gets into trouble, then man can redefine marriage any way he wants. Man can destroy marriage if he so desires. But if God created marriage, then he has answers for marriage when it gets into trouble because he knows the reasons for which he created it. He understands the institution very well, and he has provided means to deal with the problems when it occurs. And that's the reason why we have so much revelation in Scripture dealing with the husband and wife relationship. There's no way in a short conference during a weekend like this we could ever cover all that the Bible says about that. We're just going to skip from a few points to a few points to help you to understand how there is real hope for your marriage. And it starts with understanding this, that God created marriage and God created it with a purpose. Now, that's the contemporary presuppositions in God's design. But secondly, let's talk about the Christian presuppositions in God's design. Let's go back to Genesis 127 again, and then verse 31. And you'll note in verse 27 where he talks about he created them with this gendered identity and gender distinctiveness, male and female, he created them. 
So we can see that from the very beginning, God never intended celibacy to be the norm. In fact, that really comes as a result of the fall. It comes as a result of the fall. Because now man is alienated from man. So God, from the very beginning, expected Adam and Eve to complement one another in their relationship. This also tells me, according to Genesis 131, that God calls this relationship not just good, but very good. And that's rather distinct because throughout each day of creation, first day of creation, you can see it in verse 5, God calls um, uh, what he did good, verse 8, second day, third day, verse 13, fourth day, verse 19, fifth day, verse uh, 23, uh, he calls all of this good, 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 good. When he gets down to the sixth day of creation, he creates Adam, and then what does he say? It's not good. That's right. This is the first time that God says something is not good. Why? Because Adam needs Eve. Adam needs Eve. It is not good, Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So, God creates Eve. After he creates Eve, she, by the way, being the crowning and lasting point of, of creation... Now, God says in verse 31, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. This is the last thing God creates, is her. God calls it very good. So marriage, then, is not to be disparaged. It is a holy and honorable institution. Grab your Bible just for a moment. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 13. This pops up again in this epistle. Notice what the first verse or the first sentence of verse 4 says. Hebrews 13, 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all. Why? Because it is a God-created institution. That's the reason. Marriage is to be held in honor by all. Why? Because it is a God-created institution. God established it. So anybody who runs down marriage or disparages it in any way is act actively working against God. Now we see that in society, but sometimes you also see that in the church, don't you? I mean, sometimes if you see a group of women together in the foyer of the church and they're talking about the marital relationship, um, probably seven times out of ten, they're not saying very complimentary things about their husbands. Or you get a group of men together, and they're talking about their wives. And oftentimes, seven, eight times out of ten, they're not saying very complimentary things about their husband or their wives. Excuse me. <laughs> Got to get that right in our society today, don't I? They're not saying good things. But the Bible says that the institution of marriage is something that God has called very good. And this is something that should not be disparaged by man. It's supposed to be held in honor by all people. What God has called good, how dare we call bad. But there are a lot of people that get into such miserable, miserable circumstances in their marriage that they begin to run marriage down and have a bad attitude about marriage. And you can tell it in the way that they act and react. 
Okay, we're on page two. That's right. Okay. <coughs> so sex now and procreation is a part of marriage. Sex now and procreation is a part of marriage. It isn't the purpose of marriage. That's Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism says sex is the purpose of marriage. Procreation is the purpose of marriage. Now, it's interesting where that came from. That actually came from medieval times when uh, Roman Catholic uh, soldiers during the Crusades were dying by the thousands. And, and the Pope and the Cardinals got together and said, what are we going to do? We're losing all these men in these battles. And we don't have any future for the Roman Catholic Church. And so they created a theology that says that the purpose of marriage was procreation. And, um, and they went back to Genesis 128 and used Genesis 128 as the primary reason. But the problem with Genesis 128 is God's not talking about the purpose of marriage. He's talking about the blessing of marriage. And that's the term he uses. Genesis 128, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and, and so on and so on. But they made it the purpose of marriage. Sex or having children is not the purpose of marriage. What's the purpose of marriage? Well, we're going to see that in Genesis 2.18 in a little bit. But sex and procreation certainly is a part of marriage, and it's part of the blessing of marriage. That's a good thing. Furthermore, marriage is not to be, was not intended to compete with human options or substitutes. Basically, what that does is redefine marriage. When you have Latin marriages or semi-married people, or roommates prior to marriage. That's something that God never intended. That's a substitute for what real marriage was supposed to be. Marriage really is a picture of Christ's relationship to his bride, the church. It teaches an important spiritual reality about God's relationship to his people. And it's interesting how even back in the Old Testament, God refers to himself as the husband and Israel is the bride. In the New Testament, Jesus Christ is the husband and the church is his bride. This is the picture that God intended from the very beginning. We understand God better when we elevate and esteem marriage better. In our own minds, we understand God better when we have a better concept of marriage and a better view of marriage. Now, even though your marriage may be having trouble, even though that may be the case, adopting a disparaging attitude about the institution of marriage is the wrong way to go. That's part of the sinfulness of your own heart. The institution is a very good thing. And God intended it to be a very good thing. And he intended it to be a picture of his relationship with his people. So, thirdly, Let's talk about creation theology and the original design here. The original purpose of marriage in Genesis 2.18. So let's go back there and let's take a look at Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. You see that word, those two words, helper suitable? Those two words there in the Hebrew language are azer kenigno. I will make an Azer Canigno for him. I used to call my wife my little Azer Canigno. <laughs> People thought I was cursing at her, I think. So, but I wasn't. It was really a term of endearment. Someone who is a fitting completer. Someone who is ideally suited for him. Hence, an Azer Canigno. A fitting completer is the idea. And he says it was not good for man to be alone. So that tells us that the reason why God created Eve was so that Adam could have a companion. The reason that God created Eve was that Adam could have a companion. So the very essence, the very core purpose of marriage has to do with intimate companionship wow that's so key and you know what that's the first thing that goes out the window when a marriage gets into trouble right is companionship 
When a marriage gets into trouble and there's difficulties and there are fights and tiffs and arguments and quarrels and strife that goes on in that marriage, it's the companionship and that feeling of intimacy with that other person that goes out the window. So God created marriage with the purpose of companionship. Now notice this. Uh, He says that he needed a suitable helper, a fitting completer, someone who was um, ideally suited for him. There's our, our word here, Azer Canigno. The animals wouldn't do. God didn't create a father for Adam or a mother for Adam or a child for Adam or a sister for Adam or a brother or a playmate for Adam. God did not create a golfing buddy for Adam. God created a wife for Adam because that's exactly what Adam needed. And that's amazing to me. I mean, the fact that God would do that Now look at verse 19. Right after that, it says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to all the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a suitable helper for him. So you notice in verse 18, and then again in verse 20, there is this acknowledgement by God that there was no Azer Canigno for Adam. And sandwiched in between those is Adam naming all the animals on the planet. Which, by the way, gives us a little insight into the super intelligence of Adam. A lot of animals have gone out of existence, but we're still in the process of categorizing and naming animals here on this planet. And we're still discovering them all the time. I love to watch nature channels on television, and they're always discovering some new kind of life form at the bottom of the ocean or in, out in the Amazon somewhere, some kind of new type of frog or new type of insect or new kind of little rodent creature, and they give it some kind of new scientific name in order to describe that thing. Now listen, Adam was to name all the animals on the planet, remember what he named them without duplicating the name, and he was able to do that in one 24-hour period. Talking about super intelligence. Adam was super intelligence. So, you know, somebody might brag to you, my great-great-grandfather was Einstein. Well, your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was Adam make Einstein look like an idiot. Super, super intelligence of Adam. Unbelievable. So he names all that. So why does God have him name all these animals on on the first day that he's created? Why does he do that? I think there's a very vivid reason. God is giving Adam an object lesson. I mean, Adam sees Mr. and Mrs. Elephant walk by. And if he names Mr. and Mrs. Elephant in a typical way the Semitic person would name him, it's based upon the most common characteristics. So Adam probably called uh, Mr. and Mrs. Elephant big, fat, gray creatures with long noses. All right, there we will call them that. Next one, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Skunk goes by, black and white little creatures that stink a lot. All right, next one goes by, Mr. and Mrs. Um, Armadillo, a hard, crusty little creature that rolls up into a ball, okay? And then and it goes on and on. Mr. And he does this all day long. All these animals are passing by, and he's remembering all these animals, and he's naming all these animals based upon their prominent characteristic, that kind of thing. And at the end of the day, Adam finally takes a break, He says, wait a minute, Lord, there's no animal that corresponds to me. There's no one that corresponds to me. Adam realized, verse 18, that he was alone. God saw that he was alone in verse 18, but Adam didn't realize it. It's not until he named all the animals that Adam realizes, you're right. I'm alone. The, the world was filled, teeming with animals, and yet Adam was still alone. You've heard that old saying that the dog is man's best friend? That's not true. The wife is man's best friend. That's what God intended from the beginning. So then what does God do? Verse 21, immediately after this, 
God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. You got it? You understand this? Adam goes to sleep single, wakes up married. Okay? Goes to sleep single, wakes up married. He takes one of the ribs, close up the, pl- the flesh at that place. And the Lord fashioned into a woman the rib that he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. And then verse 23, notice what Adam says. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called. What has he been doing all day long, by the way? Naming animals. So he names her. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, what is this bone of bones, flesh of flesh thing? What's happening there? You know, there's only one other time in the entire New Testament that that same Hebrew phraseology is used, and that's over in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 1. 2 Samuel 5, 1 is the coronation of David as king over Israel, and the people come to him and say to him, bone of bones, flesh of flesh, you'll be our king. Now, what are they saying to him? They're vowing their loyalty to David as their king. That's what they're doing. They're vowing their loyalty to David. Bone of bones, flesh of flesh. They're vowing their loyalty. What is Adam doing here in Genesis 2 and verse 23? He's vowing his loyalty to Eve. Bone of bones, flesh of flesh. Now this is remarkable. You know why it's so remarkable? Because Eve didn't have any competition. There are no other Eves out there. And yet Adam still does this. He is so delighted with her that he vows his loyalty to her no matter what. Bone of bones, flesh of flesh. You know what, lady? I'm committed to you. I am committed to you. Wow. And then he names her. That's what he's been doing all day anyhow. And he names her based upon her most common characteristic. You know what it is? Here's the Hebrew word, isha. The core word of the Hebrew, isha, is soft. <laughs> now, I don't know what he did, whether he walked up to Eve and poked her. Whoa, soft. I don't know what happened here, but somehow her most common characteristic was soft. Now, you may rash your wife about buying all that soft soap and all that stuff and body stuff for the shower and stuff, but that's just in her DNA, all right, to do that kind of thing. That's just a part of her DNA because that's who she is, all right? Soft. He liked that. He liked the fact that she was that way. And he calls her bone of bones, flesh of flesh. She shall be called softy. I'll call her softy. Because she was taken out of man. And I don't know whether he was hard and ruddy or whatever, but compared to him, she looked soft. And he liked that. Then it says, for this reason, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they should be one called one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. Fourthly here, the covenantal bond. In fact, marriage now becomes a covenant as Proverbs 2.17 says and Malachi 2.14, <coughs> which is a sacred vow to cut a covenant. Marriage was considered a sacred, unbreakable bond, a lasting lifetime commitment in fact, it's referred to with the Hebrew word barit, not burrito, that's Mexican. It's barit, all right? And it has the idea of being, when you cut a covenant, back in ancient times, two people make an agreement, they would take an animal and slice that animal in half, and the two parties would walk between the two halves of that animal. And, and basically, they were saying to everybody, today we sign papers when we make agreements, they used to sacrifice animals and walk between the two halves of the animals. Basically, they'd be saying to everybody that if we were to break this particular covenant or agreement that we're making together, may God do to us what has been done to this animal. May God split us in half. So now marriage, this, that's a pretty sacred commitment. Marriage now is referred to as a breed. 
it is referred to as a as a sacred covenant uh, an unbreakable bond to one another that's the idea so and then it's expressed in verse 24 verse 24 says that man shall leave his father and mother which now tells us that from the very beginning God intended the parent child relationship to be a temporary relationship that's what God intended he intended the parent child relationship to be a temporary relationship not permanent temporary that's really key you've got to rear your kids my wife and I have done this and I don't love my kids any less than you love your kids you've got to rear your kids to leave the home not stay in the home all right we've already kicked out two daughters we have two sons we're going to have to kick out here pretty soon so they need to be on the hunt for their wives pretty fast here okay otherwise they're out and they know they're on their way out I love them yeah would I like to keep them around but for their sake they're going they're on their way out you have to rear them to leave not stay some parents rear their kids as if those kids are going to be around all their life I mean going to stay in the home all life it's a wrong way to rear your kids now I am not against homeschooling we homeschooled our kids for years so we're a homeschooling family from way back. But there's one thing I found out when I was a pastor for 25 years. In fact, we had a pastor's meeting. A bunch of pastors got together and we started discovering that a big problem was occurring among homeschool families. And that is people in our, in our churches were homeschooling their kids all the way through. And they were acting as if those kids were going to stay a part of that home the rest of their lives. And then all of a sudden, the kids decided to get out and move and go off to college. And then they meet their mates and get married. And then this couple who has raised their kids this way basically centered their entire relationship around the children and made, made the children the center of the home. Now, all of a sudden, to the shock of everybody in the church, are getting a divorce. And everybody's going, What? What's going on here? Do you know why? Because they made the essence of their relationship the rearing of their kids, not the fact that they were committed to one another. When the kids become the center of the home, when Johnny becomes the center of the home, that you'll eventually pay for that in your marriage. A husband can do that with his kids. A wife can do that with her kids or they can both do it together with their kids and then you take Johnny out of the center of that home which Johnny becomes the essential glue that keeps the two of them together then all of a sudden mom and dad are going opposite directions and we're going why is this happening it's very easy for homeschooling kids or families to become child-centered homes not parent centered homes those kids as you rear them need to see mom and dad at the center of that home and they revolve around mom and dad's relationship that's why the parent child relationship from the very beginning God has intended to be a temporary relationship the husband and wife relationship God has intended to be a permanent relationship permanent secondly God says cleave the word for cleave here means to weld together glue together it's the basis of the commitment leave father and mother cleave to your husband and wife I'm sure back in ancient times if they would have had the word super glue that's one word that would have been used here super glue yourself together you ever get super glue on your hands you pull it apart and take some skin with you with it well, super glue yourself together so that if you were to tear it apart, you got to take skin with it. Um, in other words, this is a lifetime commitment so that you are one flesh. That means you're one physically, but it means more than that. You're one in your parenting outlook. You're one in the way in which you deal with your finances. A good marriage has a budget. Why? Because the budget is an agreement on how, as one, 
you're going to spend your money. Most couples look at a budget as a straitjacket. Oh, no, no, no. It's an expression of your unity. You know, you have to come to an agreement. My wife wants really nice frilly curtains, and I want new tires for the car. Okay? So you have to come to an agreement. How are you going to spend this money? Because you only have a certain amount of money coming in. And if you're going to be a good steward with that money, you've got to spend it well, and you've got to come to an agreement on how you're going to spend it well. So you become one in the way that you view your finances. You become one in the way you deal with your children. You become one physically. In fact, you ever notice couples as they get older, they start to even look like each other. They do. That's not a bad thing. That's really quite a good thing in a good Christian marriage. They talk the same. One of them starts a sentence, the other one finishes it. They know what the other person's thinking. That's really good. That's a compliment. I remember when I was a pastor, we had a dear older couple in our church, uh, Delbert and Evelyn Lakes. I'll never forget Delbert. God has since promoted the two of them to heaven. What a dear, dear couple. They would have never been on the front page of any kind of 17 magazine or anything because neither of them were really good-looking people. They really weren't. But I'm telling you, godly people, I would watch as a pastor after church, that dear old couple stand in the, and all the young people and younger couples come and talk with them and stand around them and glean from their wisdom. And one of them would start a sentence and the other one would finish a sentence and I'm going, now that's what needs to happen in my marriage. Become one. Absolutely one. So that the kids or no one else sees a speck of daylight between you. Not a speck. That is true intimacy. Now, you're, you're still your distinct person. You don't lose your individuality in that sense. You're still, because you've got to be a distinct pe- person to, to be a valuable contribution to that marriage. But over the years, you become increasingly weaving your life together one. Leave, cleave, become one. All right, let's take a break. And then, um, Jeremy, Pastor, you can tell us when we're going to get back together.